Last week's entry was predicated on a Mother's Day column written by Elizabeth Brunig for the New York Times and the backlash it received from progressives for being, as they see it, a version of so-called toxic traditionalism. I'm not going to rehash the details. Just go read or listen to the previous entry if you need to get caught up with that. But it's enough to say that Brunig's position is broadly Christian. I mean, I agree with her views outside of some of her policy proposals, and it was attacked by a pointedly non-Christian, if not anti-Christian, antagonist. Brunig's response was not so much to defend herself, she left that to others, but instead she quietly endured and allowed the Twitter dust-up to run its course. It was, in my view, a wise decision for a number of reasons, but the conflict itself raises questions about how we should engage with each other in our digital age, both in person and online, and with Christian and non-Christian alike. What follows, then, are five things I think we should consider. One thing is that people in our circles often have, in some form, the identity of a culture warrior, in particular that of an embattled culture warrior. It is a similar position, if not the opposite politically, to the victim status of many progressives. That is, we, the beleaguered faithful of the Judeo-Christian ethic, are an oppressed minority suffering under the liberal media and, as we see it, an increasingly totalitarian state. This trades on the same sentiment of sexual identity politics and the idea that its members endure under the oppressive and intolerant standards of a toxic and hateful Christian tradition. Victims have taken on the status of the morally righteous in our culture. Sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not, to the point that groups are in a race to the bottom because that's where the moral high ground is found. I mean, no group wants to be seen as oppressive, even as everyone wants the authority to dictate terms. This has the unintended consequences of making many Christians perpetually on the defensive with the expectation of being offended or marginalized. In one sense, you know, this is right. Jesus said the world would hate his people on account of him, so we should expect to be rejected and reviled. But in another sense, it's awfully hard to love the world when you're fighting a culture war to defeat them. The culture war, as it has been waged by Christians for most of the 20th century up to the present, assumes that God is in fact not ruling this world. This is why some Christians put signs in their yards during election cycles that reference 2 Chronicles 7 in the hopes that if people pray, God will bless our nation again, as if he's currently absent the scene. And because of that, we must, like David facing Goliath, faithfully rise up the little guy versus the giant, defeating our enemies and taking control of power, in particular governing institutions like the Supreme Court. We need to make America Christian again. The net effect is that Christians who are called to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them often reject Jesus' teachings as irrelevant to our current political climate. I mean, this is no time to be turning the other cheek or they just ignore it altogether. However, once Christians accept the terms of the enemy, once we decide to fight fire with fire, it's a short walk to the paths of anger, 
vitriol, hatred, and bitterness, even as the fruit of the Spirit, while still taught, is reserved for Sunday school classrooms. Now, to put this in perspective, here's a list of questions I came across that a South Asian church asks people who desire to be baptized. Here they go. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? That's your inheritance. Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? This isn't hyperbole. This is reality for some Christians in this world. This is the life they are willingly and knowingly baptized into, and it's much more faithful to Jesus' teaching than what's on offer with the culture war in our own country. How might such a view towards the world and our place in it, towards our baptism, change how we speak to other people, both Christian and non-Christian alike? It's worth pondering. A second thing is that the First Amendment may give us the right to blast people, but Jesus does not. The most common emotion attributed to Jesus, the one, you know, Jesus is the one who fully reveals who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. The most common emotion attributed to him was compassion. His heart was moved deep within him by the sin, hurt, and brokenness of this world. Only a God like this would be moved in equal measure to save self-righteous Pauls as well as self-loathing prostitutes. After all, when Jesus describes his own heart in Matthew 11, he says he's gentle and lowly. A third thing is that every human you encounter, every single one, has an incredibly complicated and unique history that's every bit as valuable and strange as yours. You know, we recognize our own uniqueness, but often fail to see this in others. So, for example, I recently read novelist Paul Kingsnorth's beautifully bizarre piece for First Things entitled The Cross and the Machine, in which he recounts his journey to faith, which took him through, I'm not kidding here, worship of nature, to Oxford University, to Zen Buddhism, to becoming a Wiccan priest before Jesus hunted him down and took him. Now, if you were to look at him, you would never guess this about him. And what's more, none of us could predict how God would bring such a man like this to faith. Our calling is not to win or to judge whether someone is fit for the kingdom. And here's a hint. No one is fit for the kingdom. It's rather to love God and his image bearers, which means, like that South Asian church clearly understands, we might have to be willing to lose. That's the fourth thing. Our calling in every relationship is the same. Come and die. Otherwise, it isn't love. To come and die is just another way of saying, lose your life for the sake of another. As Matt Smethurst recently commented, you will either love people or you will use them. There's no third option. Think on that. Just think on that. In every relationship, everyone, we are given the choice between loving 
or using them. Our anger or indifference or hatred of someone is often a result of our inability to use them. We want them to measure up to how we rather them be. So, for example, when it comes to talking with our enemies or even just people we disagree with, what's our motivation? If it's to win the argument or score points, you know, we may very well do that. And it's possible it may have a good outcome for all involved. It's possible, surely. But more often than not, we argue in order to prop up our sense of self-righteousness. They need to know they're wrong. It's like what Peter Kreft wrote in relation to defending the faith. He wrote, Most apologetics tries to feed spinach to a reluctant baby. And I I don't think he has in mind that sugar-infused canned food mush from Gerber's. No. As he continues, Christianity is not a hypothesis. It's a proposal of marriage. Now, he's not saying that when disagreement happens, whether between Christians or not, we don't present the truth or contend for it or even argue for it. Of course we should. No, the issue is what we are saying and how we are saying it. You know, in my own experience, I know I can win most arguments. I have a PhD, which means I've been well-trained at fighting with words. I'm far more adept and studied on issues pertaining to Christianity, you know, things like ancient texts, history, philosophy, theology, than most people in our county. I'm not being arrogant here. I'm not trying to, you know, brag about that. It's just true. So how should I use such a tool? How should I speak to others? Maybe especially when they disagree or come after me. I know how to overpower with rhetoric. I know how to flex with large words. I know that I can cite things that people can neither confirm or deny or maybe even understand. I know how to make people feel stupid or inadequate. I know how to belittle. I know that I can use my position as a pastor as a trump card. Do I want to win or do I want to persuade? Is it better to take the hit, swallow my pride, and not respond even when I know that what is being argued is ridiculous? You see, truth without love really isn't truth. You may outwit or outlast or shame your opponents with the truth. You may outreason them or even silence them. But what have you actually won? Likewise, love without truth really isn't love at all. It's merely empathy and it leaves people in their sin. No, truth and love are wedded together. It's like what Daniel Darling recently commented. He writes, I love my friends and family. I don't affirm their conspiracy theories. I love my kids. I don't affirm their disobedience. My wife loves me, but doesn't affirm my bad habits. Jesus loves me, but doesn't affirm my sins. We can love our cultural enemies or even just the people we disagree with in the pews without affirming their lifestyles or arguments or attempting to cancel them. We don't allow the culture wars to set the terms of engagement. We allow Jesus to do that. A fifth thing to consider is this. 
Is there a difference between responding to enemies of the faith and responding to those we disagree with who are brothers and sisters in Christ? In one sense, no. We, we should speak to all people, regardless of who they are, out of love for them. But on the other hand, I think there is a difference of tone. With non-Christians, both those antagonistic to the faith and those indifferent and everyone in between, I hold no illusions about trying to change their minds on important or divisive issues because we don't have the same fundamental heart commitments and thus we read the world differently. Even so, we should attempt to speak well to them and find common ground where we can. But with people who claim Christ, we should assume that the same Spirit is at work in each of us, uniting us to the same head, Jesus the Christ, and thus Christians should have ultimate common ground as one people. This means, at least in theory, that we ought to have better dialogue with Christians and should be able to assume more, or so Paul argues throughout his letters. There are some Christians with whom you can have real dialogue, real depth of conversation without it devolving to name-calling or flippant accusations, even as you disagree over significant issues. Count yourself blessed if you have such friends. But there are some Christians in which you cannot have this kind of friendship, and sadly, I've learned the hard way that it's best to politely refuse engagement. It's a trust issue as much as it is a respect for the other person issue. I absolutely refuse to engage in any kind of debate on social media, even as I admittedly fight against the temptation to defend myself or dunk on views I find erroneous. I will not hash out anything with anyone on a public forum, and unless I really know and trust that person, I rarely will engage with things of consequence by way of a text chain or email. Again, I've learned the hard way, through ministry no less, that the possibility for misunderstanding or for misapplied motivation or for missing the tone of voice or for reading into someone's words is far too great. I have both hurt Christians and been hurt by them through all these forms of communication, and I'm thankful for wise and faithful friends, especially my wife who, after I've received inflammatory messages, have talked me off many a ledge of sitting sinned on some response I really shouldn't. So if it is a serious issue, the old face-to-face way is the best way, as uncomfortable as that may be. I mean, after all, humans are far less apt to make sweeping indictments when they have to look the other person in the face as they do it. So what then? Maybe it's best we quit fighting to win. Culture wars, bickering on social media, our marriages, and instead start fighting to live quiet, faithful lives as Paul desires in 1 Timothy 2. This may be one of the best counter-culture war things we could do. Maybe it's best we quit taking the First Amendment as a God-given right and instead be slow to speak and slow to anchor and quick to listen as James chapter 1 recommends. Maybe it's good to work, to really work, to see every human we encounter is made in God's image just like we are and just like we've been taught from Genesis 1. Maybe it's good 
to cultivate wisdom and walk into every encounter with an eye to how we can love the person well. It's why Proverbs deal so often with speech and listening and why I talk so much about this topic. The majority of the way we interact with other humans is through our speech, which means the most common way of loving our neighbor is manifested in what we say and how we say it. Word choice, tone of voice, motivation, those are all a really big deal. As Mike Leake recently said, I'm convinced that 90% of the time, reading comprehension is a character problem and not an intellectual one. That is, the issue isn't a technical understanding of the words on the page sort of issue. It's a hard issue. I'd add listening comprehension to that list too. Are we reading or hearing what is actually being said or are we hearing what we want to hear? Are we looking to be offended? Are we interpreting the person charitably? Are we giving the person the benefit of the doubt? Perhaps the best thing to consider comes from the wisdom of Dallas Willard. And we can apply this to every relationship we have starting right now. He writes, I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word.
to be 